everybody. Welcome to Intention is Everything. I am your host, Karen Frazier, and with me, as always, my good friend and co-host, Cheryl Knight-Wilson. Hi, Cheryl. Hi, how are you today, Karen? Good. Have you gotten the haircut yet? No, no, no. no. <laughs> you, can, you, can measure the, you can measure the quarantine by the, the length and... Yeah. And the depth of hair. Oh, I have one scheduled for July 3rd, so I'm super excited about that. I, I have one scheduled for July 13th. Oh, so next broadcast, I'm going to look better than you. Yes. <laughs> I won't do my eyebrows. So, all good. Yes. All right. So, um, I am really excited about our guest today. I have actually read one of his books and would like to read the other. And so it's in my queue of things. I always have a huge queue of books, right? Um, his name is Mark Anthony and he is known as the psychic lawyer. He's actually an Oxford educated trial attorney who is licensed to practice law in Florida and Washington DC before the U S Supreme court. And he regularly appears on TV as a legal analyst, a psychic medium, and an expert on the paranormal after death communication and near death experiences. That is quite the range of, of things that you do. Mark, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's really great to be here. I appreciate it. So the first thing I have to ask you is the psychic and the lawyer part, because I know that in my professional life, until I went just full on woo woo chick, it was hard to mesh those two things. Um, so how does that go over for you to mesh those two things? Well, the, um, I'm focusing entirely on my work now as a medium, author, and public speaker, although I appear on TV and radio as a legal analyst in, in a lot of high-profile cases. But uh, when I was practicing law, um, you have to realize that both uh, to be a credible medium and to be a credible attorney, you have to have evidence to back up your position. Certainly, attorneys need evidence to make their case, and as a medium, I have to bring forth messages from the other side that contain verifiable facts as opposed to just, oh, your grandmother's here and she loves you. And people tend to think that, you know, all lawyers are heartless, uh, vampiric beings that just suck the lifeblood out of everybody. And, and then people think that uh, mediums are some type of, you know, demonic um, worshiper or perhaps that were charlatans. So, you know, in both professions, I've had to put up with a lot of grief from, you know, people who just really don't understand things. What people need to understand is that both mediums and lawyers help people through the most difficult times of their life. As an attorney, I've helped so many people who've lost loved ones due to the negligence of somebody else, or in some cases uh, due to murder. Also when people have been arrested or severely injured because I was a prosecutor, I was a criminal defense lawyer after that, and then a personal injury trial attorney. So. I've done, I've tried over 300 jury trials. I've certainly done my time in the uh, trenches of the legal system. And as a medium, my job is to facilitate communication between people here in this world and their loved ones on the other side. 
Sure, makes sense. And I don't think lawyers are heartless. I've worked with a lot of attorneys. I worked as a guardian ad litem in the um, in the foster system, and so I recognize the good work that you that that many many attorneys do. Thank you. Well, you know, it's it's. I'd say that most attorneys are are decent people, mm-hmm. and like in any profession, it's like right now what's going on with the civil unrest and concerns about law enforcement, which yes, absolutely changes have to be made. But most police officers, the vast, vast majority are amazing people, men and women that put their lives on the line to protect and serve people every day. And some rotten apples have really spoiled the barrel. Um, You know, when I was, when I was six years old, I was walking in the, the river, um, Actually, it's a lagoon. It's I live on the Barrier Island, the East Coast Central Florida, and I stepped on an oyster bed and it sliced my foot open and blood was gushing out. And, and my parents um, were, were scooping me up and this cop was driving by and I guess he saw what happened. He pulled over. He jumped out. He wrapped my foot up and he sped me off to the hospital. He basically saved me from bleeding to death. So, you know, you've got to you got to realize that. Uh, Police officers are not inherently negative and evil. Uh, however, I do believe that it's important to to raise training, raise standards, um, increase sensitivity, do community outreach. I think there needs to be dialogue between law enforcement, local government, and uh, the African-American, the Latino community, the white community. People need to be talking on how they interact. So anyway, I, I just I did want to to address that because this is a very serious problem going on in our society right now. And all of us, Karen and, and Cheryl, as spiritual teachers, we have to be at the forefront because nobody is born a bigot. This is this is a behavior pattern. This is negative thinking, which is the result of centuries of societal conditioning and and thinking and enough is enough it's time for us to to lead the vanguard and help people realize that we really all are brothers and sisters yeah for sure so it's something that i've definitely um struggled with as a spiritual teacher and um because i i agree with everything you say look i i know some i've known law enforcement all of my life um, and have had, you know, I've dated law enforcement. I've had lots of good law enforcement friends and, and you're right. But so how do you, how do you feel that as spiritual teachers, how do you feel that we could address it? How can we lead the way in a way that doesn't sound, um, trite or dismissive or, um, you know, just out of touch? First off, we have to be good listeners and, we have to let people look at things from a different perspective. Um, I was talking to an African-American friend of mine recently and you know, he said, well, you don't know what it's like. And I said, well, I might. I spent a lot of time in Japan and with all due respect and love to, to uh, our brothers and sisters of Japan, um, Japan has a reputation for being a very racist country. They don't like the Chinese. They don't like the Koreans. Um, they don't like um, Europeans. And I remember like I'd be walking down the street in, in either Tokyo or Kyoto or Kama, Kamagawa uh, where I was and women would clutch their purses when I walked by and I could see people were afraid of me. And I remember I was in this bookstore. It was a store in Tokyo. 
and they sold Japanese books, but that were translated into English. So, you know, I wanted to get, I wanted to get some, some books and, and read more about, uh, I was there studying Buddhism and you know, I'm six foot one. So I'm a pretty big guy and I'm coming out of the store and there's this, um, this guy, he may have been about 35 and he was walking up and he looked up at me and there was like sheer terror on his face. You know, like I was one of these guys out of Vikings, like, ah, you know, and, you know, and I, I stood aside and I said, Konnichiwa, you know, and he, he like, you know, walked by me. And I explained that to my my um, African-American friend. He goes, well, then you do know what it's like. He said, this happens all the time. You know, I walk by people and they're thinking that I'm some type of criminal. I'm going to do something to them. So the the best way that we can teach people, and I don't mean to sound cliche by this, but Every great belief system has a, a version of the golden rule. Treat people the way you want to be treated. And we have to do that not only in our words, but also in our actions. So that's how I think we as spiritual teachers can, can get that message across. It's a very old lesson, but it's really, really hard. You know, people talk about, you know, it's very easy for people to say, well, I'm a Christian, and then turn around and... Uh, wave a Confederate flag and uh, start screaming racist slogans and, and things like this. Um, it's very easy to say, I am a Christian. It's a lot more difficult to act like Christ. And that's what the teachings of Jesus did. The teachings of Buddha did. The teachings of Krishna did. They raised the bar. And saying, I am a Christian, no more makes you Christ-like than standing in a garage makes you a mechanic. You've got to actually do it. And uh, that's a lesson for all of us. We all have prejudices. No matter who you are, we all have these preconceived notions. We all innately fear people and things we don't understand. And these are the things that we have to work against. Yeah, I think that's that, that message is, is what we really need to hear. And like you said, it is so simple yet so hard yes and, yeah and so why does it have to be so hard why is it just are we in a moment are we in the moment let's say and we just forget that we're all connected that 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 we all come from the same source what makes it so difficult to really look at the person next to us as being the same even though they may look different or sound different or come from a different place Cheryl, I, I think that is one of the challenges of living in the material world. And so when we come into this life in this incarnation, in other words, if we stayed on the other side as an immortal living energetic being, which ultimately we're going to revert to, um, there's there's no hatred, there's no negativity. Um, it's, it's a purely energetic environment where... Um, there, you know, the weak don't victimize the strong. There's not prejudice, but coming into this world, there's all of these challenges. And I think that this discrimination and prejudice uh, grew up over hundreds of thousands of years. Think about in primitive cave societies, the tribe of Trog did not like the tribe of Og, and so it became the us versus they syndrome. And, and uh, so we didn't like this tribe, we didn't like that tribe. And then we start encountering other people who physically look different from us or had a different belief system or religion. It's, it's a hurting instinct. So we want to feel part of something. And our part of something, we want it to feel better than that other 
other group. And so now we're presented with the challenge that we're a global society and these primitive belief systems of us versus them, you know, this race is superior to that one, this religion is superior to that one, this country has a right to be, you know, an empire um, over these countries. I think we have reached the point where as, as a global community, we need to be reassessing this. I certainly not, I'm a student of history and I'm certainly not naive enough to think that, you know, we're going to become the Republic of Kumbaya and all join hands and sing, sing happy songs. But I think that we can all learn to start respecting each other and realizing that everyone in the world is my superior in that I may learn something from him or her. Oh, yeah, I love that. Because when you start to look at it from you can actually learn something from someone else. It just, it takes on a whole new level. I'm wondering, do you get messages from spirits about things like what's going on right now in the world? And what is their perspective on this type of situation? Well, um, in the past couple of months, it seems like that's about 85% of the readings that I've been doing for people. And for the people who don't understand, I'm a medium. So I communicate with spirits on the other side. I'm not a fortune teller. Okay. So, you know, people say, well, what's my love life and career? And it's like, well, you know, those are things you can actually figure out for yourself, but it's, and, and I don't mean that negatively, but um, com communicating with the other side and the other side is very invested in what's happening here. They're not here to control us. They're not here to tell us what to do, but they are here to guide us. And 85% of the readings, and I'd say since February, have all been involved with COVID, um, discussing it in one form or another. Um, what we have been given a chance is for the first time in human history, all the scientists in the world all the medical experts are all working for a common goal, and that's to find a cure and viable treatments uh, to control the, the, COVID, uh, the COVID pandemic. And that's unprecedented in human history. And while everybody was in quarantine, things in many ways were getting better, certainly from nature's standpoint. Air pollution dropped dramatically. Um, people in India and Mumbai were able to see a nearby mountain range that they haven't in decades. Uh, dolphins were spotted in the canals of Venice, which are notoriously polluted. And they haven't seen dolphins in the canals of Venice for nearly five centuries. Um, friends of mine in L.A. said they could actually see the sky uh, because nobody was driving. Their pollution was down. Animals started coming into areas in state parks and national parks all over the world where you never see them because people weren't there. So nature let us know that you may need us, but we don't need you. But what was happening is that for a shimmering moment, we saw that perhaps if we put all of our brain trust in the world, instead of trying to invent ways to destroy each other, let's put our, our doctors, our medical experts together working for cures to diseases. Let's put our um, other scientists working on clean energy sources. Even the, you know, that we use fossil fuels, there's ways, I'm sure, technologically to make them cleaner. So there's ways to boost food production without, you know, uh, burning down the Amazon and, and uh, essentially raping, raping the, the world. So this was like a planetary opportunity 
that was was projected to us. And it seemed, it seemed for maybe six weeks, we might just be getting the lesson. But then the ego-driven personalities that run countries stepped back in and boom, now we're back. And now for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. And now COVID is soaring in the countries that are putting um, money ahead of, of health. And, and the thing is, I don't, this isn't political. The disease is not political. It doesn't discriminate, unlike people. It'll kill anybody. So, so that's, um, that's a big part of many of the messages that I've been receiving that we've been given an opportunity and uh, perhaps all is not lost. I'm, I'm an incurable optimist. So uh, I, I actually think uh, there is hope for humanity. So do you think then that we can return to focusing on the opportunity as opposed to um, the things that divide us? Because now, like I live in Washington state and um, you know, well, and this is probably all over the country. They just mandated masks for us um, when we go out in public and there's huge backlash against that. So how do we, how do we step away? And, and people are frustrated, right? You have two very, very different camps. So how do you step away from that frustration and return to the opportunity? Well, I, I love the name of the show. Intention is everything. I think that once again, we have to set the example. When I go out in public, I wear a mask. And depending on where I go, I even wear goggles. You know, people need to understand. When I see, when I see people wearing a mask and it's underneath their nose. <laughs> yeah. Okay, the, all right. Newsflash, everyone. The COVID-19 virus attaches to mucous membranes, which are found in your mouth, your nose, and your eyes. <laughs> okay, that's what needs to be protected because these droplets are flying around. They attach, boom, you're going to get it. And according to friends of mine in the pharmaceutical industry, COVID is 10 times more contagious than the flu virus and 10 times more lethal. And as we've seen, the numbers of contagion double every four days, and now they're on an upswing again. The problem is this has become politicized, and it's absolutely ridiculous. Because when you listen to the scientists, wearing a mask is is our only defense at this point, that and social distancing. I live in Florida, the um, Palm Beach County today, uh, issued an, a mandatory order for masks. And all these people came in saying, um, you're offending the will of God. You're doing the devil's law. They've turned it into some type of religious discussion. And which is, which is really fascinating from an anthropological standpoint that people who are wallowing in bronze and iron age paranoia somehow think that that um, supersedes modern science, which proves how this disease is spread and the way to prevent the contagion is to remove people from the possibility of it. And when you're out in public, to, to create a shield to prevent the droplets from attaching to your mucous membranes. I'm sorry, but there's nothing religious about this. And people say, well, this is an infringement on my rights. Well, look at it this way. If you don't like wearing a mask, how are you going to like being on a ventilator? Right. Yeah. I mean, I... I preach into the choir. I agree with you. Well, yeah. and, and the thing is, I'm sure I'll, I'll get a bunch of negative uh, hate mail and things like that for saying these things, but uh, I've never been one to, uh, to keep my opinions to myself. But the thing is, 
we have to, God gave us the most amazing processor known to our science, and that's the gray matter between our ears. And I believe that God helps those who help themselves. So using the gray matter occasionally really comes in handy. I agree, absolutely. So I do want to return really quickly to um, the discussion of systemic racism. Um, because one of the things that I, I think that people are reacting to is a sense of defensiveness, at least white people, a sense of defensiveness and a sense of, of guilt. Um, and neither of those are productive emotions. So, so how do you step away from that defensive reaction and that feeling of guilt and turn it into something constructive? Start without patronizing comments. I mean, I've heard people go up to, you know, say, say to black people, you know, some of my best friends are black. You know, I really liked Michael Jackson's music. All right. First off, stop that. Um, treat everybody at face value. And what I mean by that is just treat them um, the way you would anybody else. And, you know, when I start seeing this, um, like you said, the, the, this white guilt and this white defensiveness, um, you know, I've had people say, well, you, you know, you oppressed us. And it's like, excuse me, I didn't oppress anybody. My mother's family came from Italy um, in the early part of the 20th century and the conditions that they lived under in New York City and North Jersey were anything but luxurious. And they were essentially um, working for, for less than, than uh, I mean, subsistence level wages building the city of New York. Uh, my father's family was from Pennsylvania and uh, they actually fought, um, um, I've got uh, photographic uh, documentation. My father's uh, family fought for the union you know, against slavery. Um, but the thing is, I am not responsible for what my ancestors did. Conversely, I am also responsible for not being indentured servants to our history. And that's when people start waving Confederate flags and saying, this is, is uh, not hate, this is heritage. Really? What does that flag symbolize? It symbolizes a traitorous slave state that fought to destroy the United States of America and keep over 4 million African people or people of African descent enslaved. What other country in the world allows statues and monuments erected to people who tried to destroy it? Have you ever been to Stone Mountain in Georgia? Um, Robert E. Lee, Jefferson Davis, and Stonewall Jackson are in great, it's like the Southern version of Mount Rushmore. It's enormous. I mean, it's a beautiful work of art, but they do this entire thing venerating these people. I mean, do we have a statue of Benedict Arnold in the US Capitol building? Um, is there a statue of Adolf Hitler in downtown Jerusalem? I mean, come on, it, it's time for us to let go of these archetypes in this romanticism that the South was somehow fighting for some elegant society. What happened was after the, the Civil War, and it was really terrible, 
that Abraham Lincoln was assassinated a week after the war ended because he had a very complex complex construction reconstruction plan to incorporate the Southerners back into the United States as our fellow countrymen and women, not as as a subject population. But and anyway, he died, and then um, uh, Andrew Johnson was a disaster. Um, just completely said stupid and inappropriate things. I mean, not like, you know, we've ever heard that. Um, and then the Grant administration did its best, but things started falling apart. And then around 1900, uh, as the Civil War uh, generation had died out, a whole series of Southern writers began writing these novels and creating this idyllic um, world that they, they said was the South, which never did exist. And of course, you know, we all know about Gone with the Wind, which I don't believe in banning. Okay. I don't believe in banning. I don't believe in rewriting Mark Twain's uh, writings because of, uh, you know, because that's the literature of the period. But then there, there came this historical revisionism, which has propagated this hanging on to the past and looking at the Confederacy as these noble re rebels. When instead they were nothing more than a neo than a Nazi um, racist slave state, and so that's why we have to begin dismantling these things while still showing respect for our history. Don't destroy these statues; put them in a, a museum with the proper historical context. It's like what we're seeing in you're in Washington in state in Seattle. Um, I'm sorry, but mob rule and anarchy is contrary to civilization and, and shame on uh, the, the mayor of Seattle for allowing that to happen. And they, they took a um, police station to turn it into a community center. Okay, so um, there was a murderer there and of course people wouldn't let the, the police in. And so when crack dealers are kicking down your front door ready to kill you, who are you gonna call? A social worker? You know, I've, <laughs> um, you know, there has to be a balance. And so let me wrap this up with the systemic racism. It's gonna have to occur um, all the way from the White House, all the way down to local government. It's not going to happen overnight, but it has to start. And obviously, it has to start now. Yeah, uh, yeah, this is a, a really intense discussion. And I think it's it definitely has to be had. It has to continue. And um, we need to move forward and and come together and Really, it's going to be tough, but uh, I'm also optimistic. And I think that, you know, we have a long way to go, but I, th I think we're making progress even right now. So thank you for your viewpoint on that. I think it's really important. And um, I wanted to go back a little bit and talk about your abilities as a psychic. And um, I know, it, at least I think I remember, it runs in your family. Is that correct? That is correct. I'm on both my mother's and father's sides of the family. And you, you understood that, well, when you were really young, you actually discovered your abilities. Yes. Yeah. How, how is it for you to be so young and to be able to deal with something like that? Uh, I thank God every day for the parents I had, because, you know, it's not unusual for a child to start talking to, you know, invisible mm -hmm. friends. But when your parents are like, oh, we see them too. Okay, so I'm talking to these people. My parents realized, all right, he's talking to spirits. And um, I remember mom was like, oh, he's got it. And dad was like, oh, he's got it. <laughs> um, 
Because, you know, the Italian side of the family looked at it as it's a gift from God. They called it the gift of second sight. And my father's family, while it was very prevalent there, it was very, shh, don't talk about it. You know, it was kept uh, behind closed doors because of the social stigma against it. And I remember my dad telling me, he said to me, he said, Mark, people who see things that other people don't get taken away. And that really scared me. Mm. Uh, I found out years later, and um, I'll give you a bit of a spoiler alert, Karen, because this is in my second book. His sister Marjorie was an extremely gifted psychic medium. And so my dad had this ability, his sister Marjorie, his mother um, Isabel and their maternal grandmother Grace had had these um, abilities. And Marjorie was very good at foretelling future events. And one day her husband was going to work at a uh, steel plant in Pennsylvania. And she started getting that feeling that, you know, we get in our, our midsection. She goes, oh, something terrible is going to happen to you. And she threw a fit and he got all angry with her and fine, I'll stay home. Well, he worked in this machine shop in, um, in, at the steel plant in Harris, uh, was in Harrison, uh, Pennsylvania. And that day, a crane was lifting thousands of pounds of steel beams, and the cable snapped, and it crushed the machine shop, killing everybody in it. So he would have been there, or at least you know, 99% chance that he would have been there. So one would think that he would have repaid um, her with kindness and love, but he was um, an extremely religious zealot. And he felt that she was receiving messages from Satan. So he conspired and had her involuntarily committed to a mental institution. And, and uh, my father said, you know, he remembers seeing guys in white coats forcibly dragging her out of her, her own home, oh. screaming. They put her in a straitjacket and she was subjected to forced electroshock therapy for over a period of six months. And they, what they do, they'd shock you, then stick you in ice cold water. I guess it was this, this treatment, mm -hmm. if you can call it that. And essentially, they damaged her brain to the point where she never again ever spoke about future events or seeing spirits. And so this was very, very frightening and disturbing to my parents. And that's why they told me, they said, Mark, don't talk about this to anybody but us. We understand. And so it didn't take long for me to realize that not everybody's family was like mine. So, mm -hmm. so that, that's why I know it's a, a bit of a story, but um, I think, I think that, 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 that's how I dealt with it. I learned to just talk to mom and dad about it. Yeah, it's definitely, there's, there's a lot of, there can be a lot of stigma involved in it. Um, I am a big believer that my grandmother was a psychic um, she, I would walk in at Christmas and she would be butt up under the Christmas tree, touching presents and saying what was in them. But she was also a very proper Catholic lady. And, um, so we didn't believe in that. And, um, she was institutionalized as well and given electroshock. So, so I hear what you're saying. Um, and I've long suspected that that was, that it was because of her psychic abilities that she thought that what she was having was dysfunction versus just having a connection to things. Well, certainly. And, you know, I was fortunate because I had parents to talk to it about and people in previous eras, you know, talk about, all right, discrimination, uh, Cheryl, you're um, asking me about that. Mediums have been persecuted for thousands of years 
in, in Muslim countries, the Middle East, people like us were beheaded. Um, a couple of years ago, um, Saudi Arabia is very mysterious about uh, releasing how many people they execute. But I think it was in 2000, either 16 or 17, that uh, something like 130 some odd people were beheaded that year for various crimes in Saudi Arabia, a third of them for sorcery, which is, is what would fall uh, under that category. So to this day, I mean, if you're walking around in Pakistan or Afghanistan saying, I see dead people, um, I wouldn't count on living real long after you said that. And you know, this isn't demonic. I mean, that's a bunch of nonsense. This is based on sound scientific concepts, quantum physics. It's the ability of us to raise our brainwave frequency to a higher vibration. The other side and spirits see that they bring their vibration down and we get a frequency match um, because everything is energy and vibration and spirits being pure consciousness, ergo pure energy, are certainly moving at a much faster vibration than those of us in a denser, more material form. And so when you start analyzing what's actually happening, we know that energy is neither created nor destroyed, only transferred from one form to another. So that when the body ceases to function, the, um, the programs on our hard drive, meaning our soul, which is housed in the brain, get uploaded to this higher frequency. So anyway, that, that's it in a nutshell about, um, about that. But when I start hearing all this, you know, this is the work of the devil, it's like, yeah, I don't live in the Bronze Age. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, I get it. So the, you said something and it triggered something in me. So I'm just going to ask you, um, and you may not have an answer for me, but it would be interesting for your perspective. So I have for years um, had, I, when I was a kid, they were my imaginary friend, George. And um, now when COVID started, uh, they started really, I channeled them occasionally, but when COVID started, they started hard hitting channeling. And, um, and so I was channeling for a couple hours every day, writing out their messages and things. And I developed an itch, an all over itch on my body that would not go away. And it didn't until I went back to kind of my more normal levels of channeling and so do you have any thoughts about that? Could that have been just a, a adapting to frequency or? Let, let me ask you this. Um, were you getting a lot of it on this part of your body? Yeah. On the, arm? In my, the tops of my legs and on my arms. Uh-huh. I have been itching off the scale for the past three months. No and way. I'm like, I was like, oh, yeah. you know, I've been putting like cream and, and uh, witch hazel, <laughs> witch hazel, you know, which is uh, an astringent and um, hydro, um, um, yeah, um, hydrocortisone on there. And, um, but, but I also know from medical science that itching is a form of pain. Mm -hmm. So we're picking up on pain and we're manifesting it that way. But I've noticed, yeah, it's been um, along, along this part, part of my arms. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, I've been tested for, uh, um, you know, all sorts of things and everything's negative. Mm -hmm. So it is coming to us from a spiritual standpoint. So, yes, um, this, this pandemic, you know, a lot of people are like, is this the end of the world? Is this the apocalypse? From as long as history has been recorded, there have been plagues and pandemics. So I want people not to panic. 
but I also want people to social distance, use masks, wash your hands, use common sense. Not only will that decrease uh, contagion of COVID-19, but also it will of strep throat, flu, the common cold, and other you know diseases that diseases that are airborne and through droplets. And overall health is going to improve. The feeling that I'm getting from the other side is that the turnaround time is going to be in March of 2021. And it seems to me that things are going to continue to go haywire um, with COVID until then. And then I see a stabilization. Um, it's interesting because a lot of the medical experts are talking about between the end of this year and you know, they're saying January, February, it looks like a vaccine will probably be be uh, and I understand Oxford, my old alma mater, is at the front of the pack uh, in developing this. So you know, cheers. Uh <laughs> <laughs> that is real. I, I, it's just it, it's a question that I think everybody has right now: is what's going to happen? All of this this fear and uncertainty, and I think we just want to know what's going to happen, and just it, it, not knowing is just adding to to the stress levels and the fear. And, and I think it's amping up everything. I think it's fascinating, this psychic itch that you have. Um, <laughs> it's, 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 it sounds psychic. better than it is. It always needs <laughs> to happen in the middle of the night. Does it happen in the middle of the night? Yeah. I wake up and I'm like, God, I'm itching. And then, you know, you know how it is. Yeah, you wake up and you're itching. And then it's like, okay, finally I get it under control and then I'm awake. Okay, yep. and it's 4 a.m. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like bruised from scratching. I, so I, it's under control now, but there was a period of about two months. Woo. It was. Well, it's part of being an empath and you're, you're very highly empathic. And what we've got is this global, this global shockwave um, going through. And uh, the, the, the sad part is the resistance to science that people, you know, thinking if I'm wearing a mask then I'm giving into an agenda and it's like, yeah. So do you have, um, have you received any information? Because the other thing I'm hearing a lot is, look, we're on the brink of civil war. American civilization, as we recognize it, is going to crumble, which I don't necessarily think is a bad thing. I think that um, the messages that I received from the Georges, as I call them, is that this is our opportunity to shift our focus from money and shift our focus to things that are are more in alignment with the values of the new humans being born our you know our um next wave of our, our younger people our crystal kids our our all of those children but um do, do you what 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 do you hear from the other side about this belief that we're on the brink of civil war i i don't think that we are i i don't think that we are um, but I also think about the, in the 1960s, I mean, it was, you know, I was too young, but I certainly, you know, read history and watch the, the, uh, the, the films about it. Um, the, the great turmoil of the civil rights movements in the early sixties, um, you know, the, the movie Selma was very gripping and, but it was much more than, than a movie. And a lot of people died. There was great loss. Uh, then the shift became the protests against the Vietnam War. But what people have to realize is that protest is as American as apple pie. Um, how, did we, how did we start to break away from England? The Boston Tea Party, which we glamorize. And 
you know, it, I, it was funny. I was in Boston and, and, you know, I always heard about the tea party where what happened was um, the British were taxing tea really high. And, and our complaint was that as citizens of the British empire, we should have had representation in parliament. And if the British would have been smart enough to give the colonies representation in parliament, then the American civil war most likely would not have happened. But instead, they started jacking up the the price of um, uh, the tax on tea. So a bunch of uh, people, patriots, I guess you'd call them, criminals, the British called them, dressed up as American Indians or Native Americans. Great. So, you know, they don't blame it on that. And they, they boarded all these merchant ships and threw the tea in the harbor. And, you know, when you hear that when you're a kid, you think, oh, well, that's no big deal. In today's dollars, that tea would have been $700 million. Holy and crap. Oh, yeah. And <laughs> it bankrupted a number of British aristocrats because that was their investment. So why do you think it's like we kicked a hornet's nest right in the you know what? And they sent an army and a navy over here and like, OK, so, yeah. So when you find out that the Boston Tea Party was a seven hundred million dollar hit on Britain's elite, boom. But the thing is, that was a protest. And, and our country was, was founded on protests. Um, the rights are rights of free speech, of assembly. Now, when the thugs infiltrate uh, the peaceful protesters and use it as a pretext to burn and destroy, well, there, there's no, no excuse for that. But for people to take to the streets and to advance their cause peacefully, that is a guaranteed right in the First Amendment of the United States Constitution. And it, it says, and I quote, freedom of assembly. And that's what that is. So I don't think we're going to devolve into racial civil war because every intelligent, and I stress the word intelligent person in government realizes that we have to make these changes. Young black people um, should not be getting shot by the police if they're running away, okay? Um, I've been with the police uh, as a prosecutor. I've been out with the police, and I've seen what they have to deal with, and it's not easy, okay? There's a, a lot of attitude that people of all races give them, and and uh, but but when you when you hit a cop, you got to realize, or you start um, fighting with a cop, they are trained to react. So that's not the the smartest decision uh, someone can make, but. Um, what I think, and if, if you'll indulge me for a moment, the we all have heard of Miranda rights. You have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can and will be used against you in a court of law. You have a right to an attorney. If you can't afford one, one will be appointed to you. That came from the Miranda versus Arizona decision uh, in the 1960s. And Miranda, he was basically a thug and a murderer and the police beat a confession out of him. Okay, the old rubber hose approach, you know, you beat him until you get the confession. Goes up to the United States Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court says, well, you can't, you know, forcibly coerce uh, a confession. A confession must be made after somebody is informed of their constitutional rights, which we now know as Miranda rights. Well, the Miranda decision at first was scoffed at by law enforcement, but what it did is it changed education, training. It, it actually improved the quality of law enforcement. And I think that the, the, the very tragic death of, of George Floyd is going to have a similar effect that now the training, the standards, uh, 
the education and maybe the sensitivity training or cultural diversity training among law enforcement is going to increase so that ultimately we're going to end up with an even better system of law enforcement than we have now. The sad part is so many people uh, have died and it hasn't been affected, but George Floyd was was the straw that broke the camel's back and it set off a, a chain reaction, not only in this country, but around the world. So we very well and most likely will avoid a racial civil war as and and uh, as our politicians rise to the capability and rise to the challenge. And of course, we're in an election year and it's very possible that a lot of people in power may no longer be in power. And perhaps that'll be a good thing, you know, bringing a whole wave of people with with more up to date ideas. And also, when you look at law enforcement, um, the vast majority of cops I know are really great people. They don't want to see these things happen, uh, and and they're on board with it too. So, so I I don't feel that we're going towards a racial civil war. I think what's happening is unfortunate, but it's also part of being an American. It is being able to speak your mind. Um, so, anyway, I've got real passionate feelings about <laughs> our rights. I I'm. I don't want to see a civil war. I want to see change and I want to see unity and I want to see us evolve. But yeah, without the civil war, please, <laughs> you know, we just, we don't want to go there. Um, I want to ask about your studies in quantum energy and quantum consciousness and how light comes into play. Can you just tell us about, about that? I've always had a fascination with quantum physics, and my dad was a NASA engineer, so I've been around science uh, my whole life. And we all, you know, those of us, and, and not just us, but, but people talk about seeing the light. And even the word enlightenment means, you know, um, opening up and being exposed to a, a greater understanding, and in the spiritual sense, to a greater awareness um, of your connection with the universe. And everything on the subatomic level, in other words, everything's made of, of molecules, which are made of atoms, which are made of electrons, protons, and neutrons, which are in turn made of a smaller particle known as quanta. Everything at its most basic level is quanta, which is electromagnetic energy, ergo quantum physics. Mm -hmm. So, and, and Albert Einstein said that uh, we're all light beings. Now, what does that mean? What it means is that on the subatomic level, everything, you, me, the microphone I'm talking into, the radio waves this show's being transmitted over, the light from the sun, the nuclear reactions within the sun, the grains of sand at the bottom of the ocean, everything is made of the same form of energy on its most basic level. And so that that's why everyone and everything is interconnected. That's why the color of our skin doesn't matter. Mark, Dr. Martin Luther King was absolutely correct. It's the content of our character because energetically we are all the same. And the only form of electromagnetic energy which is visible to the naked eye is light. And so when people encounter um, God or an intensely spiritual event, it tends to be described of 
in terms of light. And so that's because that's our ability to perceive this spiritual energy of the divine power that we call God. So enlightenment is an understanding and a connection with this power, but it also exists within us on a cellular level because within the last century, um, scientists have discovered that our cells emit flashes of light, ultra weak um, light emissions, which they call biophotons. So it's long been wondered how messages in our body, like if you drop a hammer on your foot and you immediately feel, feel that, it's that the connections between the cells in our body, it's a matrix of light and light conveys energy and information so that the light that is without, the light that is the divine power of God is also, as Jesus and other great spiritual teachers have told us, the inner light. So that Einstein was correct, we really are all light beings, which then brings us to our consciousness, which is electromagnetic energy within our brain. So our brain is using this matrix of light through biophotons to communicate, and that when our body ceases to function, and energy neither being created nor destroyed, only transferred, so the, the hard drive for um, that stores the computer program that is our soul, um, when the hard drive crashes, that electromagnetic energy, that light is then transferred to a higher frequency, ergo the light. So consciousness is both physical and etheric then, is that what I hear you saying? Because it's physical because quantum physics is a provable mathematically um, and some experimentally science. So, so is consciousness um, because my husband and I used to debate this less so now, but he used to always say, well, what if consciousness is just a series of chemical reactions that, that cause you to, you know, a series of yes or no chemical reactions that cause you to behave in certain ways? Well, it, it is, it is not physical. Um, the brain merely houses consciousness. It does not create it. Consciousness, the soul, the spirit, whatever you want to call it, pre-exists the body, comes into the body, and then moves on after the body. And so, um, and the reason that I say that is this is bolstered by the last 50 years of survival of consciousness and near-death experience research, where people, including myself, when I was four, um, I had, excuse me, I had an NDE. Both my parents had near-death experiences. Wow. Um, we were a pretty metaphysical family without even trying, apparently. Um, <laughs> I remember uh, my mom choking. She was dancing to a video one time going, let's get metaphysical. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, <laughs> but um, consciousness is something which is greater than, than the body. Because when you look in a medical book about the functions of the brain, let's say it's an 800-page book, and um, there may be eight, 800 or 799 pages about functions of the brain and maybe two paragraphs about consciousness, because scientists cannot explain how consciousness is created and that it is more than just bioelectrical functions of our brain. 
And when people have a near-death experience and your consciousness leaves your body, hovers above your body, and is able to give veridical accounts, in other words, truthful and verifiable accounts of what, what your consciousness encounters, and then the going into the light, the spiritual energy of God, encountering people that, uh, that, um, that are connected to you in various ways who've passed, and dare I say, even connecting with the divine power that, that we call God, and then is able to return to the body, that's why it's a near-death experience, um, science can't explain this. Uh, they, they've tried, but, um, and, and I mean, I could, we could do a whole show just on, on, uh, near death experiences, but, but science cannot, medical science simply cannot explain the formation of consciousness. They have their theories, but the survival of consciousness and near death experience field, uh, fields indicate that our consciousness um, is only housed in the brain, yet not created by it. Well, I would say to anybody who, who struggles with consciousness not being a physical function, be with somebody who dies as they're dying. Because I was, I was with my dad when he died, and um, it was the first human I'd ever been with when they died. I'd been with animals. And as, I mean, as he was going, I felt people come for him. And he was saying things like, Ooh, and what's that? And look at that. And, and all of those things. So if, if you've been in a transition experience with someone, for me, at least that ceased to be a question. Absolutely. Um, I've been at a number of uh, bedsides of people who are dying, um, including my father. And, um, I start seeing the spirits to greet them start lining up. And uh, somebody, um, the, this, this one family asked me to come. Um, this is a snippet from my new book. And I was there for a period of 23 hours before she passed. And I counted something like 27 spirits. And her kids could identify 21 of them because some of them seemed like they were a couple generations back, but um, there were two that really seemed to, to get, get them. Um, um, well, it was more than two. I start saying, uh, an orange tabby cat just jumped on her lap. Okay, so this lady, she's on the morphine drip. I go, the spirit of an orange tabby cat, and I keep hearing Harpo. And her kids start freaking out. They go, oh, my God, our mom had an orange tabby cat named Harpo 40 years ago. Oh, oh my okay. God. <laughs> and, and it's like they're, they're you know, and, and it was, it, it was it, there was nothing funny about the whole situation. I mean, that was like, oh, my gosh, you know. And the hospice workers, because she was in a facility, like this crowd starts forming out the door, you know. And then it was like, oh, that's Mark Anthony. It's like, you know, it wasn't about, you know, that. But, but. Um, I started naming people. I said, well, there's a Dottie and a Dolly, and one of them has bleach blonde hair, and the other one's a redhead. And they started laughing, and they said, oh, yeah, our, our father had two aunts, Aunt Dottie and Aunt Dolly, and one of them bleached her hair blonde, the other one dyed her hair red, and they were always teasing each other about, well, you're a bleach blonde, and you're, you know, and all this is like, you know, I couldn't make this stuff up. And, and so it was actually the families, I've, I've talked to them quite a bit since that, and they explained to me how very comforting it was to know that all of these people were there to, to greet their mom. And something very profound happened at, at 
one point, well, two points, I was sitting there and all of a sudden there was like this flash and I was gone for a minute and I found myself in this room. Everything in it was white and there was this doorway. It was, it was more like a threshold. And the woman, you know, her name was Marie, and she was standing in the doorway, except she looked young and beautiful. She had black hair, and she was wearing this blue dress. And she was standing in the doorway, and she said, I'm afraid, Mark. I'm afraid. And she came up, and she put her head on my shoulder and hugged me. And then I said, and she goes, I'm afraid. I'm not ready. And all of a sudden, boom, I came back. And um, my manager was with me, Rocky, because actually, you know, she, she was very close to Marie. And she said, well, what just happened, Mark? And I explained that. And of course, Marie's kids are looking at me like I've got four heads, except for one of them. She was like, okay, tell me what happened. And I said that she's not ready to go yet. Well, about eight hours later, um, and we were all exhausted at this point, all of a sudden it happened again. And there she was standing in the threshold with great confidence. And she said, I'm ready now. And then I came back and I said to Rocky, I said, we got to go. She goes, but Mark, we need to be here when she dies. I said, we've got to go. So we left and we're driving up the center of Florida from, from Naples, Florida. It's in Southwest Florida. So we're driving up US 27, right up the, the middle of the state. And it's like real, real very rural there. There's not you know, nothing really. And all of a sudden I go, Marie's in the back seat. And Rocky's like, what? I go, Marie's in the back seat and she's wearing this blue bathing suit. She's got these Jackie O looking sunglasses. Her hair looks great. She's got this bandana. I'm describing all this. And we look at the clock and it's 4.45 p.m. 15 minutes later, her son calls and he's crying. He goes, my mom died. And Rocky goes, when did she die? He goes, about 15 minutes ago at 4.45 p.m. So then his sister gets on the phone and I described what I saw. And then they call me back about 10 minutes later. And she said, you just described this picture that we have of our mom on her honeymoon in Bermuda. She was wearing that bathing suit, those glasses, everything you said. And what it was, spirits will do this when they come through. You know, we think of them as you know, older people looking old and, and sick. And that's how we think of them. Well, they'll show up looking 22, 23, 25 years old because they're letting us know that they're pure energy and that energy doesn't get old. It doesn't get sick. It doesn't die. And that's exactly what she was doing. And I've had hundreds and hundreds of accounts where spirits have morphed into these beautiful young versions of themselves and also in near-death experiences when people encounter loved ones in spirit, uh, people tend to look like they're in their 20s. Um, my mother came through to me once and, you know, she was in her late 70s when she died and and she came through looking young like that. And I go, well, mom, you look so beautiful. I go, why did you, why do you portray her? Why do you do that? And she said, because I can. That's right. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that when I come back, I'm going to come back as my 22 year old self. Oh yeah. I'm, I'm doing the whole washboard ad motif, you know, you know, um, but once again, pure energy doesn't get old, doesn't get sick, doesn't die. We are immortal living beings temporarily living in the material world. Yeah. And that's everything you've said. That's super comforting because first of all, you basically said that no one dies alone. And that's incredibly comforting um, because, you know, people torture themselves about that. If they can't get to be with a loved one when they die, well, he died alone. Well, nobody dies alone. 
And the other thing that's really comforting is, is that something happens once we go that it's not just we're taking a dirt nap and that's the end of it, you know, something happens. So I wish that we had more time. We actually are up against the hour because it's been absolutely fascinating to talk to you. We're gonna go a few minutes over because I want to ask you about one intentional practice that you do um, that is simple that maybe our readers are readers, sorry, I'm still in, in work mode, that our listeners and viewers <laughs> be able to use as a tool. Don't take, I don't take myself so seriously. Um, you know, don't take life so seriously because you never get out of it alive. And, <laughs> and, I'm, not, <laughs> and, and I'm not trying to be facetious about that, but we get so wrapped up in ourselves and our problems and our dilemmas. And if you take a step back, have a good laugh at yourself, don't take everything so seriously. You know, realize not everyone's going to like you. Not everyone's going to agree with you. Um, not everybody's going to understand you. And yes, you have problems and, and all that, but all things must pass and will pass and that you'll get through this. Uh, you know, I know people are always saying, well, you know, what type of med Yes, I meditate. I pray. Um, I also believe in, in getting uh, good exercise, um, get out in the air, um, have some alone time. But I think the most important thing is don't take yourself too seriously. I absolutely love that. And then finally, the last part, as promised, shameless self-promotion corner. Look, we even have a banner for it. <laughs> Um, if people would like to schedule a phone reading with me, follow me on um, social media, uh, subscribe to my newsletter, or um, order my books, please visit my website, evidenceofeternity.com. And I am I am extending an offer to Intention is Everything listeners. When you fill out the form for a, a telephone reading with me, and they're just as accurate as in-person readings, write that you heard me on intention is everything. Okay. And you'll qualify for reduced fee reading. And I'm making this available for, for your listeners because during this COVID crisis, you know, everyone's being hit hard um, economically. And now more than ever, we need that connection with loved ones and spirit. So um, I'm, I'm extending that offer, but you have to write intention is everything in the, in the form to qualify. And, uh, you know, it's my website, evidenceofeternity.com. I want to thank both of you for having me on the show. It was an absolute um, honor and pleasure. Um, God bless you and namaste. Yeah, namaste. It's been great having you as well. All right. So that is Mark Anthony, the psychic lawyer. And um, we could have gone on a lot longer than that. Yes. Yeah. We could have forever. <laughs> I don't know. Do we have our next one scheduled yet? I don't think we do, do we? Not not quite yet. Okay. Well, we'll figure it all out. In the meantime, um, to our producer, Michael, thank you. As always, you are fabulous. It makes it so easy for us. <laughs> Thanks for having me, guys. I love for what sure. I do. Yep. And um, anything else, Cheryl? No, just um, thanks everyone for watching slash listening. And um, you can uh, check out more podcasts from Intention is Everything mm -hmm. and older podcasts for Paranormal Underground Radio on Podbean and iTunes. All right. Thank you, everybody. And um, have a good rest of your month. My God, it's almost July. July. I know. Yikes. All right. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs>
Erica. Bye. Bye. Thanks, Mark. Thank you.